starting a new series on prayer, um, and I'm going to go through various prayers in the Bible, great prayers in the Bible, because I think in this season, um, the leadership and the staff kind of felt have felt like we need to begin everything in prayer. We need to wrap everything that we do in a cloud of prayer, rather than kind of being stressed or focused on what ministry are we going to do? How are we going to outreach? Kind of what are our programs or what's, what's going to be next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Um, the idea of being spirit-led, stopping and listening for the voice of God corporately as a collective, um, as a church, as a church body, a community. What does it mean to pray? What does it look like to pray? How do people pray in scripture? And, and kind of come tap into the power of God and the wisdom of God. And, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, uh, my father was pastor of an immigrant Korean church. And I have always admired the immigrant church in America. I've always admired and envied the immigrant church in America. In fact, after we worship here and leave, a Russian church comes in and worships. And trust me, I've been to one of their worship services. You need to like a lot, a few hours, you know. The one, the one I went to lasted three hours, and the, I was one of five people that gave a sermon. <laughs> and the pastor just asked me spontaneously, will you give a sermon? I was like, okay. That's why I try to avoid, like, I'm out of here. <laughs> because I don't want to give spontaneous sermons. Because I'm not a faithful man. Um, but, just um, but, <laughs> but I admire them because they get on their knees. There's several points in the service where they get on their knees and are crying out in prayer. Just out loud. And uh, it, a bunch of individuals just crying out to God out loud. You know, some call it Korean style prayer. Crying out loud as individuals. Um, in prayer, and it's just loud. If you're downstairs in the fellowship hall and listen to the church praying, it gets really loud, and you're like, what is going on up there? doesn't look like, sound like our service, right? And I've always admired that, and I've always admired my father. My father, the Korean church, the immigrant Korean church, you know, there was early morning prayer services daily. Right, during the weekday, so 5 a.m. in the morning, people, my father would go to the church, sometimes drag me along, and people would show up, and they'd have prayer services. And then, you know, men and women on the knees, just crying out in prayer, in fervent prayer. And I always envy that, and I was always like, how can I get to a place where I have enough to say to just pray constantly out loud like that. I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even, there's not like things that I feel that passionately about. These are things I'm thinking about as a child and as an adolescent and teenager. Like, what do I care about so much that I would pray out loud, you know? And so someone, you know, one of my friends gave me a trick, just find like a scripture or just find one thing and repeat it over and over really loud and like, then you sound like you're saying stuff and you're praying. So I'd be like, Lord God, help us. Lord God, help us. Lord God, help us. Oh, Lord God, help us. Lord God, help us. Um, but I've listened to my father and other people, and they're actually praying for things, 
praying for people, praying for specific things for an hour or two hours. Incredulous. And I remember sleeping as a child growing up and my father coming into my room thinking that I was asleep, but I was actually awake. But I would be fake sleeping because I wanted to see what was, what was going on. And he put his hands on me and get on his hands and knees and just pray for me. And I'd just pretend I was sleeping and listen. And kind of like, I'm a words of affirmation guys. So I was like, oh, he loves me. You know, when he doesn't know that I'm listening or awake, he's thinking of these things about me. He's praying to God on my behalf. He wants me to grow up to be this or that. And he wants me to be a man of God. And it always made me safe, feel safe and secure and feel that my father loved me. To hear him pray for me when he didn't know that I was listening. And just the love of a parent. And I can kind of understand that because I try that, you know, with Cammie and Isaiah when they're sleeping. You know, I go to their room and I pray. Mine are like 10 minutes, right? Whereas my father might be 30 or 40 minutes. Mine are like 10 minutes. Um, but prayer, like the fervency of prayer, the need for prayer. I kind of equate it to runners, right? People who run for a hobby, run for fun, or marathon runners, they get to a point where they have to run, right? And you're like, are you crazy? I hate running. I can run for maybe two minutes and then I'm cramping, or my back hurts, my feet hurt. I'm like, I don't have the right shoes, I need to stop, right? And, but runners are like, oh, I need to do my 10 mile today, you know? If I don't do it, I'll go crazy. Right? They need running. They have to run. They have, it gives them pleasure. It gives them, you know, it makes them, it completes their life. And that's what I think about prayer is it must be, there must be a prayer high, right? If you do, if you practice it regularly, if you're always praying, if you're practicing praying, you must grow in endurance for prayer. And then on top of that, you must even grow a passion and desire for prayer. And I've always been like, I want that. I want that. I want that. And maybe it's hard for us, maybe it's hard for me, because I grew up differently than my father. Right? I'm, I'm educated in the U.S. I went to college. I went to seminary to be a pastor. Right? It, it was all about academics for me. You know, I'm a smart guy. And then on top of that, I grow up in a culture that values independence, that values competence, that values control. So everything that I do, I do out of my own mind, my own intellect, my own hard work, my own competence. I can do this. I can minister to people. I can preach to you out of my mind. I can run a church, a pastor a church, and pastor people out of my ability and my knowledge and my intellect and my experience and even my wisdom. But it's much harder in a place where we are used to relying on our competence and independence and ability and our intellect to rely on prayer, to turn to prayer. Amen? 
it's much harder for us. So we have an uphill battle, I think. And that's why I think prayer is no fun for a lot of us in the American church, right? For me, prayer is a meeting, right? And then in the meeting, you have to stress out about who's going to open, who's going to close. Are we doing popcorn style? Like how many does everybody, if it's popcorn, does everybody have to pray before someone closes? Or, you know, are we going in, a, in, a, in order, like from right to left, or are we going clockwise? Like, this stresses me out. And like the awkward silences, like, oh. And like, you know, if I'm in a new prayer context, a new church, like, what is their prayer language? Like, what's their style of prayer, right? Like, what's their cadence and what's acceptable or not acceptable? If I start breaking out in tongues, would people freak out, right? Do I say this or do I say that? It's stressful. And for, for me, I don't know about you, prayer has become a burdensome activity in the church. Like, it's hard to have a good prayer meeting, right? Just like it's hard to have a good meeting where people are invigorated and excited. Amen? At the same time, I think all of us have experienced the time where we've been in prayer with our friends or our family, and it's been really life-giving, right? Maybe you were in crisis. Maybe you had something to discern, and it was the spontaneous time where you're like, I need prayer, and people came around you, laid their hands on you, laid their hands on you and your spouse or whatever, and really prayed for you honestly. And you felt the presence of God, and you actually heard God speaking to you in the words of the prayers of the people around you. And you're like, truly, the Holy Spirit is at work. This is dynamic prayer. This is what prayer is all about. Or as a church, if you've come together before, as a body, as a community, right, in ministry, or looking ahead for discernment, or, or what we're going to do in the future, and God really came and spoke kind of the same things in different people, and everyone compared notes, and it was like, I'm hearing the same thing, right? I'm discerning exactly what you said. Those moments have been really invigorating for me and life-giving. It's like, yes, this is like the early church. This is what God, Scripture means when the, the body of Christ comes together in prayer. And I think we long for, one, we need prayer. Right? Just as Moses said, you know, I will not go, you will not go from this place without you, God, without your presence. We can't move as a people of God without his presence. And his presence... Um, our prayer, our prayers are our communication and connecting with God's presence among us. We need prayer before anything else. Are you with me, church? Amen. Renewal begins with prayer. And I'll make a clever language of renew, renew church begins with prayer. Vision begins with prayer. Ministry begins with prayer. Transformation begins with prayer. 
Everything begins with prayer. Whatever we want to build in this place, whatever movement we want to start, whatever activity is going to happen, it begins with prayer. That's the first point. The second point is God hears prayer. And that's what Tosh talked about last week, right? El Roy, the God who sees, the God who hears. When the people of God cry out, this is Exodus 2, Exodus 1, the people of God cried out. And God heard his people cry out, and he answered them, right? Haggai, last week, cried out, and God saw her and heard her and had a plan for her and blessed her, right? When we cry out, God hears and sees us. God sees us. Are you with me, church? Did I read the scripture yet? No. Okay. So we're in Nehemiah. So one of the great prayers in the Bible is Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to read that, uh, verses 1 through 4, but I'm going to be, verses 1 through 4 and then 11, but I'm going to be referring back to the entire chapter of 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates had been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, yeah, I'll skip that part. I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah, just to give a little background, uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah has often been referred to as Ezra and Nehemiah is, are considered by many scholars as one book. So Nehemiah is almost like a sequel to Ezra and they're dealing with the same time period and kind of the same. The exile remnant of Israel, of Judah, is returning back to Jerusalem and in the returning, they're restoring kind of the worship the worship of the people of God, restoring the covenant relationship and restoring kind of uh, their commitment to the law of Moses. And so a symbol of that is the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple, and also the re- in Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the wall, which has been burned down and like broken up. And so the restoration of, the, of God's people and their worship and their covenant relationship is symbolized in the restoration of Jerusalem itself. Um, so Ezra, uh, or not Ezra, Nehemiah, as he is writing at this time, uh, is in the Persian city of Susa around the 5th century BC. But the Jewish people had suffered exile in Babylon for approximately 70 years. After, um, so the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar defeat um, and ransack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, 
And you, you got to imagine kind of what the people are going through. Like the symbol of the people or like the center of the people is the temple, the people of God. And they ransack it. And, and there's all these stories about uh, the Babylonians coming in and taking like the sacred cups and stuff um, of the temple and drinking wine from them and having a party, right? And just stealing all the gold and silver and all the sacred items and taking them to Babylon. So basically, someone came into your house, tracked in mud and dirt, and like slept on your bed, ate your food, you know, you know, defecated in your bedroom, whatever, just sacrilege and just used everything and took everything away. And then they took the people back to Babylon, right? So there's actually, uh, mostly they took the nobles and the lords and the priests and the prophets out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, and took them to Babylon. The farmers and the workers stay aboard, got to stay in Jerusalem and work the land. But basically, like, the nobility, the lords, and the priests went to Babylon. And that was 70 years, right? Um, and these, these were in stages. So people in stages were being exiled to Babylon. And then after that, the Assyrian, the Persians defeated Babylon and began the process of returning the people back to Jerusalem in waves and stages. Uh, so that's what's happening. Um, Nehemiah is the cupbearer um, in the court of the king. The king at the time was Artaxerxes I of Persia. And um, unlike Ezra, who was a priest, Nehemiah was actually a lay person. Um, and he served in the secular position as a cupbearer. And do you guys know what a cupbearer is? Cupbearer to the king was basically before a king, you know, food and drink was brought to the king, the cupbearer would drink uh, the drink before. It's like the quality control guy, right? But the quality control was for, for the purpose of the king not being poisoned by an enemy, right? So this is like Isaiah in my household. You, Isaiah, you drink this first so I do not die. If you die, then I know not to drink that, right? It's like Isaiah is my cupbearer. So Nehemiah worked in the secular court of the king, and he was the cupbearer. And this is actually a very, trust, very trusted, trustworthy position. It's a man who's in the high court, right, sits at, sits at the table of the king. Someone the king really trusts, who's close to the king, who's willing to die for the king, right? And drink poison for the king. Um, but a very important person. So that's who uh, Nehemiah is. So that inter Nehemiah 1, he asks his friends who are returning from Jerusalem, what's going on with the exiles who've been going back there? What's happening? Give me, give me a report. And they're saying... There is great trouble and disgrace. All the walls of the once glorious Jerusalem, right? This amazing city that had great walls and the enemies that fended off enemies and enemies feared them. And everyone came who feared God to worship in the temple. Everything is in ashes. Everything is crumbled down. The wall is porous and broken down. And the gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah's response 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he says his prayer. And I wanted to give maybe next slide. Next slide. There we go. An anatomy of Nehemiah's prayer. An anatomy of prayer. Not that this is an all-encompassing list of prayer. But what we see here, the first thing is an awareness of context, right? Nehemiah questions the men from Judah. How are the exiles doing? And uh, they answer him. And I think this is a, a big point for us because as people of the church, people of God, we're not called to live in happy ignorance to the realities of the world. We engage, we question, and we assess our context, our, the world around us. Right? How are things doing? Right? It's not a Hallmark card. It's not a, Jesus is not a crutch where we live happy-go-lucky lives, oblivious to what's going on around us. I mean, if you are Christy read, led our prayers of the people, right? We are praying within the context of what has just happened in our world. Violence in El Paso, people dying, right? Before we pray, before Nehemiah prays, he becomes aware of how things are, the real situation. Engage, question, and assess what's going on. Number two, uh, what is the state of Jerusalem, as Nehemiah is asking? There's great trouble and despair. The wall of Jerusalem is burned down. The gates are destroyed. One, without, a city without walls is vulnerable and overtaken by enemies. The enemies of Judah, the enemies of Jerusalem, don't want Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. Right? Because as long as the walls are broken and down, Jerusalem is vulnerable to people, to invaders, to attackers. Like they're just the proxy between warring empires to like take this is a strategic point. It's like Australia in the game of risk. It's like who's gonna own Australia? Sorry, Robin. <laughs> but as long as their walls are down, they can't rebuild. And the physical the actual physical safety and physical structure of the walls and the and the temple and the city um, has consequence for the spiritual reality of the people and the city, right? As long as everything lies in ruins, they, their, their worship of God, their covenant relationship, their ritual, their right, their worship is in ruins as well. Right? They can't rebuild their identity. They can't build that up. A city without walls is vulnerable and overtaken by enemies. Thirdly, we see that after Nehemiah hears this report and assesses it, he weeps, he fasts, and he prays. He weeps and fasts and prays for days. And so the first part of that weeping, lament, Paul alluded to it in worship. Like they're in the canon of 
worship music, there isn't a lot of lament-oriented worship music. Because I think as the, West, the Western church is focused on victory and celebration and rejoicing, which is great. That's part of the Christian story, right? That's part of the resurrection, right? We've been saved. This is something to rejoice. But also, there is a part of that that's attached to a triumphalism in, in the West. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical, right? Because God is also the God of the weak, the God of the oppressed, the God of those who suffer. And victory only comes and celebration and joy comes because there's a deep awareness of suffering. Amen? And so um, in lament, there's a humility and poverty of spirit that Nehemiah embodies. Like he's struck and he's sad and he laments. And there's a humility like, and for us, as people who want to become a people of prayer, we need to have poverty spirit of spirit as well. And that means the humility and uh, willingness to have self-awareness, right? The willingness to have a deeper awareness of what's going on around us and how that affects us. In other words, we need to mourn for the brokenness of the world around us. We need to mourn when things aren't right. right? We need to weep when we see broken relationships, when we see people hurting. We need to mourn and walk alongside those who mourn and weep. You know, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. Jesus spoke about that all the time. Lament, fasting. Fasting's a hard one for a gluttonous man like me <laughs> who likes to eat. But I see fasting as a discipline of purity of heart. And when you think of uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, or not poor in spirit, but the pure of heart, what that means is there's a single-minded focus in your heart. Your heart isn't distracted by other desires and needs. And, some, and what fasting does is it takes away those desires, whether it's eating or other things, we eliminate the, those other desires so our heart can have the space to focus on the single thing. Does that make sense? So in fasting, right, it's kind of like it would be hard when you're, you're at a, you know, some, someone sharing something sad to be like eating and like doing a lot of things, right? We want to stop, stop that and be like, kind of hungry and, and listen and engage. And in fasting, we're allowed to be pure of heart, to engage and focus on God and what God, what God is saying and what God is doing. And then finally, prayer. He gives a prayer. And prayer is about intercession. So intercession is coming in between God and, and other people or another person. You're saying, God, for the people of Judah, for the people of Jerusalem, this is my plea. I repent on behalf of all of us. I cry out on behalf of all of us. I desire you to come and save us on behalf of others. That's intercession, which in and of itself is selfless, right? It's beyond the self, and it's thinking about 
the whole, which actually challenges our individualistic mindset as well. We need to think corporately, right? We need to think as a family, as a group. Um, and then the other thing I think about prayer is that prayer, for me, is visionary, right? So you see the wall, it's crumbled down, it's not the way I need it, I want it to be. It's not, the world is not as it should be. I look at the church, or I look at young adults, or I look at our country, and I'm like, this place has gone to hell in a handbasket, right? It's cracked, it's broken. What do we do? Our country's divided. It, politics are crazy in our world. It's like housing is crazy in Seattle. Like the homeless, it's craziness and it's broken. And I don't know what to do when we pray. It's one, it's a step of hope. Like having vision is having hope. But also imagining a world that could be. Does that make sense? That can be that God would want it to be. Imagining a world of shalom. Imagining a restored world. Imagining a, a place where there once was dry cisterns and wells, and now, right, where there was famine, there's abundance, and there's fertility, and there's waters rushing. And when we pray, we're saying, God, things look like this, and I'm being real, about assessing this, and I feel the suffering, and I'm sad about it, but you can do something different. We can go and be there. What would it look like if God came into this place and blew a fresh wind? Amen? Amen. Prayer is visionary. Number four, repentance. I think this is a hard one, too for us. Repentance is the humble recognition of the ways one has been walking the other way. The first thing that Nehemiah says, uh, he repents. I confess the sins, this is in verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And in this re repentance, it's an acknowledgement of the individual, myself, my sins, but also when he says my father's family, right? Most of us are like, you know, I just want to be responsible for what I do. Not this like corporate family generation thing. Oh my gosh, I'm not responsible for the Native Americans, right? That was like yesterday, right? But Nehemiah is acknowledging repentance and sins for the whole people of Judah, for himself and his father's household. Right? There's a corporateness, a connectedness in that repentance. Because that's how people are, right? Really, that's how we address systemic things, systemic issues. As we look at things as a whole, we look at things corporately. Are you with me, church? Um, secondly, in his prayer, Nehemiah remembers the covenant, the great love story of God and his people. Remember the instruction. This is verse 8. You gave your servant Moses saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Or if you are not faithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there 
and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Right? The people of Israel in exile began to re-theologize. They began to accept that the reason that we've been in exile is because we've been unfaithful to the law, that we've been disobedient, that we've walked away. And so there was this growing movement. And so Nehemiah is kind of using that language in that state and saying, we need, to, we, we need to repent and then we need to restore the covenant of old, right? The covenant you had with your people. And for us, what that means, the covenant with God, with his people, is remembering the God story throughout scripture. Remembering what we've been taught. Remembering what we've learned. That throughout scripture, God has loved this people and said, you are my people and I am your God. Be faithful. Be set apart as my people and I will deliver you. I will be with you. And when we forget that, we're distanced from God, but God is always faithful to forgive and restore and renew. Amen? And so, uh, the remembering of the covenant. In my own life, it's, there have been times where I've been lost and wandering, and like, I feel so far from God. And it's been like a scripture or a psalm or someone's words that are pulled from uh, Bible, the Bible has really helped me be like, oh, remember what it means to be with God and walking with God. Come back. Uh, and then finally, they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Um, prayer takes boldness, right? Because Nehemiah's position was that he was cupbearer to the king. And in the next chapters, you'll see that he brings what he needs to do, wants to do, is restore the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem. So he's going to go to the Syrian king and say, can we do this? And that's scary. Like, the guy could be like, oh, heck no, and kill him or execute him. But so part of his intercession, his prayer, and this vision is having the boldness to follow through and go to the powers that be and say, will you allow this? But first, he's saying to God, I'm going to do this thing, and it's risky. I'm risking my life, and it's scary. But I know it's right. Will you please Help me have the words to say to the king. And will you change the king's heart? Will you like influence the situation so that he would be gracious and say, do it, right? Prayer is also asking boldly and asking God for strength and courage to face the world, face our bosses, face you know the people out there and say, I have, you know, there is another way. There's a vision for restoration and renewal. And it might not be popular, and people might not agree, or people feel threatened by it, but to ask and advocate and pray for that takes a lot of courage. Amen? Fine art. The people of Israel and God's people are created to worship God and embody the dwelling for God's name. Right? 
that's the main thing, is the restoration of the temple and God's presence in the temple and as worshiping people. And so I'm going to leave us with this. Next slide. What are the broken walls around us? How does the church need to be renewed? How do we need to be renewed? Or how do we need to be renewed? Um, and I, I have some examples here, but we're going to have some time to reflect on that. One, the church needs to return to being a house of prayer for all nations, not the place for merchants and money changers. So I said con consumerism has become rampant in our churches around us, where it's more about marketing or it's more about, uh, you know, making the bottom line, you know, growth for growth's sake, having the programs, earning the bucks, filling the seats, or kind of, you know, the, the whole notion of church shopping, right? I'm going to... I'm going to go to a different church and buy, you know, what what feeds me. That, but imagine when Jesus went into the temple and he overturned everything. Like, what was he mad about? That they turned the temple and the worship place of God into a place where people were exchanging money, into a marketplace, basically. And he was pissed. And he said... My church is supposed to be a church, a house of prayer for all nations, right? The church needs to return to being a house of prayer for all nations. And we, as people, need to fight against consumer Christianity. Number two, they talk about uh, uh, the church exile. Have you heard of that? Uh, in, in the Asian American church, um, the exile generation are the second generation young adults who have been leaving the church because we were tired of our parents being like, you should come to early morning for your service and cry out on your knees. And, uh, but there's like no sense of ownership or we saw, you know, corruption or we saw a lack of integrity. We saw moral failing in our church. We saw the abuse of authority and power in our churches, and we're set, and we felt like organized religion, I'm done with that, so I'm outie. And so when uh, Asian American young adults hit college, right, they left the church, and they, they didn't return. They might have hit parachurches like Campus Crusade or InterVarsity or something like that, but once they graduated, boom, it was gone. And then I've discovered, like, that's the same story for all young adults, right? In, in North America is we hear like, whoa, young adults are leaving the church, have left the church, right? How are we going to get young adults? Like, we have grants from the Lilly Foundation to be figure that out. Like, how do we get young adults? They've left the church, right? Uh, the church in exile. This is another place of broken walls. Like, we need to recommit ourselves to the church to figuring that out. Like, what... What things have gone, what has gone wrong? Like young adults, yes, they're young adults and maybe we think they're stupid. <laughs> but at the same time, they are, they're smelling something as well. 
right? Something false in the church or something that just isn't right. There's a lack of authenticity. And we need to examine that. And we need to return to, to something that will recapture the hearts of the young. Number three, we have forgotten what sets us apart. And this is Ezra and this is Nehemiah, right? Ezra comes in, opens the scroll, reads to the people and like, we need to return to the law of Moses. We need to return to worshiping God. We need to return to what sets us apart, right? What sets us apart as people, as a church? Love, compassion, justice, ethical behavior, right? In our finances, in our uh, sexual integrity, everything. We can't be afraid to be like, we're set apart. We're different, right? Because that's what people will see and be like, oh, that's God's people. And I think there are places where we're like, ah, we'll fudge on that, we'll fudge on this, we'll fudge on that. That's, that's not what Jesus is about, right? And that's how we get to where we are in our country where people are like, is that Christianity? No, that's not Christianity. Is that Christianity? Right? Does, does following Jesus mean I espouse to a certain set of uh, political beliefs? Right? No. That's not Jesus, right? What happened to the Bible? Amen? Yeah, man. <sighs> Love, compassion, justice, ethics, morality, sexual integrity. There was a reason in the Old Testament that God had these laws. We don't follow all these laws. We don't like, we eat pork, obviously. You know, we do other things, some of us. Uh, But there was a reason he had those rules for the time, those laws for the people at the time, because it set them apart from the other nations around them. And people were like, yeah, that's God's people, right? What does that look like for us? When people look at us as a church, what are, how do they say, yeah, that's God's people? Yeah. Do they say, oh yeah, that's the church. They're intolerant, right? They're corrupt, they lie, right? They have, they have secret lives. The leaders, you know, are stealing from the church and having affairs. Like, is that what they see? Or do they see love, compassion, justice? Morality, sexual integrity. Fourth, I address this division in our country, division in the church, right? Like, that's a broken place. When the church is the most segregated place in our country on Sunday morning, that's broken. (laughs) That's brokenness. When there are companies, you know, that do a better job with multi-ethnicity and gender relations than the church, and that's brokenness in the church. Everything begins with the God who hears. The foundation for building and rebuilding is prayer. And so that's why I challenge all of us, and that's why Renew is entering a season for repentance and prayer. Right, for renewal, to stop and be like, we cannot move forward unless your presence go with, goes before us. Right? 
I've been really convicted in me because a lot of times I take pride or rely on my ideas, you know, or like doing the next fancy thing or like, like really creative or innovative thing, you know, or doing things differently. But that's me, right? That's me. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God all the time. We need to, I need to stop as a pastor and be like, I need discernment, right? If people are looking to me for vision or leadership, then I need to pray. I need to hear and have discernment. Otherwise, I'm a false shepherd, right? Leading sheep astray. And all of us as a church, we need to stop and make, bring prayer back to the center of what we do. Like become fervent prayers. And God, here, this, the walls are torn down and the temple is on fire. Help us, God. Help us bring renewal to our own hearts, renewal to our neighborhood.